Welcome to the Leadership Looks Like podcast. I'm your host, Cree Edholm. Sponsored by Leadership Excursion Company and recorded from The Coop, located in Summerlin, Las Vegas. Join us as we explore personal stories of leaders who are making incredible impacts in their businesses, lives, and communities. Get ready to be inspired, see things from a new perspective, and learn new tools to help overcome challenges. This is what leadership looks like. On today's episode, we welcome Takia Butler. Takia is an explorer, an explorer of conversation, knowledge, and perspective. She believes that coming from a place of curiosity opens unimaginable doors and that everyone deserves a place at the table. Her advice? Listen to learn and listen to be curious. Enjoy. Takia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure meeting you. Now, you just got back from a big trip. I did. I did. I think um, big might be an understatement, but definitely a lot of little bitty trips that added up to like an amazing experience. Yeah. Do you travel often? I used to. So yeah. that was part of it, that the trip in itself was me kind of getting back to being used to being on a train and like packing your things and kind of being used to being nomadic. So I used to, and this was kind of coming back to that. Okay. And mm-hmm. you went to Belize. I did. You went to I Miami. I did. Belize, Miami, New York, uh, D.C., and uh, Morrisville, just right outside of Trenton. So Sounds boring. <laughs> Sounds like a real boring trip. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about traveling? Um, my, I have two favorite things. I was just thinking about this. My The first favorite thing is actually the time in between, tra- so like while you're actually traveling. Um, so that's when I get to find new books and listen to podcasts and do all those things and living, um, in a lot of the cities I've lived in over the past most recent years, I'm usually in the car. And so because I'm focused on driving, I can't also do other things. So I miss being on a train and being able to read a book or kind of like let your mind wander in that way. Um, so that one thing, just like the trip itself. And then secondly, just all the different people you meet and how different and the same they are. I had a lot of random conversations with people where they were saying things that were so spot on, and I sincerely doubt that they were all like omens. Yeah. <laughs> so I think to some degree, we all kind of care about some basic things about just being happy and thriving and trying to live the simplest life you can. Um, so that's kind of my favorite part, like seeing what's common about us in all these different places. Yeah. When you're traveling, um, how do you start conversations like that? So obviously you're talking to strangers. Sure, sure. And how... <laughs> Are you just an outgoing person? Are you willing to talk to people? Or what kind of situations do you find yourself in oh where gosh. you have those? I want to tell you the story, but it's not a great story for a podcast. Okay. Um, in general, I think just like being open to talking about people or talking to people. Um, I was out actually on uh, Saturday, I think, and I was standing uh, with a bunch of uh, friends at an event. And one of our friends walked past a young woman and she's, she apologized. So we actually bumped into her and she apologized. And so I turned back, something in me said, go tell her not to apologize. So I turned around, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, did you just say, like, mind you, there's loud music, everyone's yelling. And so I'm like, excuse me, did you just apologize? And she's like, I did. I'm like, never apologize. You're amazing. Like, don't worry about anything. Um, so I think it's that in those moments when you get an urge to reach out or to touch someone, it's leaning into that. 
I'm like naturally really introverted. So I could be in a room alone and be absolutely fine. And that's definitely how I get recharged. But I try and follow my intuition. And that's usually how I get in a really amazing conversations with people. So. Okay. So you just listen to that intuition. You don't mm-hmm. ignore it or stuff it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Because if I don't, I'll be like anxious about it later on. So Okay. Mm-hmm. What city were you in when this happened? So that was Miami. That okay. Was, that was first, like the end of my trek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. How long have you lived in Las Vegas? Uh, so almost two years. I literally uh, got my master's degree at University of Miami, walked across the stage on the 17th, and like moved on the 21st. So packed all my things in three days. I actually still have some things in Miami. Uh, packed all my things, got on a flight, and was here. Yeah? So, yeah, so almost two years now. And what prompted you to do that? <laughs> so I actually moved for love. Um, but I also moved based on my intuition, which is probably becoming a theme. Um, it kind of like requires backstory a little bit. So I moved to Miami from New York. I woke up one day in January. It was just freezing cold outside. And I'm like, okay, I'm really sick of being cold. I'm going to move to Miami. But I didn't want to move without a plan. So I said, okay, I'll find a job that will pay for my relocation, so on and so forth. So it wasn't until July that I actually moved to Miami. Um, and the first couple of years were really hard, but I really felt like that's where I was supposed to be. Uh, so a lot of professional growth, a lot of learning what I want to do in my life. And I got to this point where I felt like I was ready to leave Miami. Um, there was a young man who I'd met in undergrad. So we'd known each other for a little over a decade. Um, and he, I had recently stopped talking to someone. I was so sad. And he was one of my close friends. And he said, you know, a part of me is really sad that this person's gone. But another part of me hopes they never come back because I want to be with you. Um, and so that was kind of the start. And so we agreed that I would move to Vegas. Um, and I had the same intuition that I had when I moved to Miami. So it was that same feeling that like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And if I do that and I trust that everything else will kind of circle, will circle the wagons, that like all the other good energy will circle the wagons around that, um, I'll figure it out. So everything didn't work out like I thought that it would, but I'm just really amazed at the amount of growth I've been able to have by just following my intuition in that way. way. And I mainly trusted it because I'd already done it in Miami. Right. So So it's a little less crazy sounding if I tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's a little more tested. Exactly. So you've done it a couple of times now. Exactly. And uh, you're, you're just trusting that intuition. Mm -hmm. Now you did mention before you moved to Miami, you had, you had a plan. I did. So you're, you're going to go to school. Is that, was that part of your plan or? No. So I uh, studied Arabic in undergrad as my minor um, and economics is my major. And I love cities and places where people are very like transitory. So there's lots of people from different cultures bumping into each other. Um, And so I really wanted to move internationally, but I didn't feel like I was ready yet for that. So Miami was really the springboard to me moving out of the country. And then I ended up like moving further back into it. Um, but that was kind of the the intention. I kind of spoke Spanish already and I wanted to immerse myself in a space where I had to use another language um, because I would always feel so uncomfortable in the language that wasn't mine. And I had to learn that most people are okay with that if you just try. So that was kind of the intuition of moving there. I actually did not want to go to grad school there at all. I randomly scheduled a meeting with one of the administrators and he said, listen, I like you. If you can get your application in in a week, we can accept you and we'll give you a scholarship. So that's how I ended up there. Yeah. So first of all, it's amazing. It's an amazing story. And there, there's a lot of information there's. going on right there that I have at least a million questions about. But the the main one that stands out for me is there's a lot of uncomfortable moments happening. And it sounds to me like you are looking for those moments on purpose do you enjoy being in change? Do you enjoy being in that uncomfortable space? Yeah, I think um, 
I make the joke of saying I'm the child of divorced parents, so I like live in abuse <laughs> and abuse to conflict. Yeah. And then, and to be fair, there wasn't really that much conflict uh, for me growing up. But I think I have certain, uh, I guess, what you would call cognitive disabilities. So I have ADHD, um, and then some sort of some social anxiety. Um, opportunities as well. I don't want to call them like disorders or disabilities, but in part, as I was learning that I had uh, these attention um, issues, I'd kind of be the person that would like pop up in one space and I'm in this space and everything started, but nothing's finished or vice versa. I learned to use that as a strength. And so in part, in moments of conflict, I just am not, I'm not as bothered as everyone else because my brain is always having multiple things going on. So if I can take that ability to, while I'm talking to you, I can see the clock, I can hear this conversation. So it just, I, I found that I had an, a niche strength that a lot of other folks didn't have. Um, and then just the environments that I had grown up in, I, there were a lot of stories of resiliency and people just seeing something through. And a part of it is seeing the opportunity to learn in every moment that you're in. And so it's a function of me being comfortable with a lot of different stimuli happening at once, as well as me really liking to learn. That kind of makes me comfortable in those spaces and sort of makes me seek them out. But I don't want to say that I'm like hanging off of cliffs every Friday yeah. after work or anything. But that's probably kind of the sauce that uh, puts me where I'm at. Okay. So people who are close to you, your friends, um, your family, how do you convince them to join in your adventure? <laughs> that is a really good question. My parents are finally at the point where they no longer are uncomfortable with me saying, hey, I'm going to just like move to Hawaii or I'm going to do whatever. Uh, but at first it was really uh, uncomfortable for a lot of people who loved me to um, recognize that I was such a risk-seeking person. Um, nowadays it's normally, I don't know that I have a lot of folks who join me, but I do, I have one really good story um, of my father who I mean, you'd have to get him on your podcast. His story in and of itself is amazing. Um, my dad dropped out of high school, um, you know, was in gangs, was on drugs, um, got himself cleaned up, went into the Air Force, got his GED, um, lots of other degrees later, is now a fully tenured professor um, teaching computer science, right? And so he's always been the story for me of, of you can make it if you put your mind to it. But when he recently moved to Pennsylvania from our hometown of Rochester, he actually said that his inspiration was me moving to Miami and me moving to Vegas. Um, and so, first of all, I'm amazed because you have this person that, you know, he's an inspiration for me. And so it's a, I'm humbled, I guess, in that sense. But also, sometimes when you just live in your truth, other people see that and are inspired by that in their own ways. So it's not that everyone has to do what I've done. But to see me decide, you know what, I'm super afraid to move to Vegas or I don't know what's going to happen when I get to Miami, but I'm going to do it because what I know I want and what I know I am looking for is if I get it, it's going to be so much more amazing than whatever fear I'm, fear I'm feeling right now. Um, so I think it's been inspiring other folks in that sense. But in general, I usually say, look, this is where I'm going and you're welcome to join me. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the parameters. And there may be parameters and there might not be, and I just need you to be comfortable with that. But usually most people will say, no, it's okay, just shoot me the pictures when you get back. <laughs> yeah. Do you travel alone often as a result? I do. I do. I have a friend who traveled for two years uh, throughout Latin America, and we were talking um, about, so he's a, he's a man, and his... Uh, concepts of safety and all these just different things are so different. And so we talked about, um, you know, moving, sort of moving around and how you sort of need to move in the world. I ran track as a, 
a youth, and so I would travel around the country a lot. And so I got really used to every summer, I always had a suitcase, and I was always kind of in and out. Um, and I was a distance runner. So while I traveled with other people, no one was doing the things that I did, and no one traveled in the timeline that I traveled on. So I've always really gotten, I don't know if it's that I prefer it, or I've just gotten used to traveling alone. Um, but in general, it gives me the flexibility that I want to be able to speak to random people and um, stay out or go in early or do whatever it is that I want to do where I am where I am. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty open to people coming along, but I'm also good with going by myself. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens when you think about traveling or you're out on your own and things don't go as planned or something unexpected comes yeah. up? How do you manage that? I try to not have expectations. So... I think that there's a difference between having things you want and having expectations about what should happen. I think expectations tend to, I think it's maybe Confucius or someone or Lao Tzu who talks about kind of like living in the middle. And I think in part of that is sort of managing expectations of extreme joy or extreme sadness or disappointment or excitement. Just kind of wherever I am in the space that I'm in, there's an opportunity here and I'm here for a reason. So it would behoove me to put my energy into figuring that out instead of kind of like wallowing or, you know, I guess the, the underlying model is like nothing too much. Um, so just kind of like living in that middle space. So I try not to have expectations. There have been lots of times when things have gone wrong. But if I look back on every moment where that did happen, it usually worked itself out in some sort of way. Um so if I maintain the same priorities that I've always had, my same values, if I kind of keep really clear about what my object objectives are when I go someplace, those are usually still going to happen anyways. Um, and so I don't need to kind of get caught up into everything that doesn't necessarily go right. Uh, I, when I went to Belize, actually, I took a friend with me who we ended up not having the, the uh, joint fun time that we thought that we would. And so at that moment, it was like, well, look, we are having an argument on a really nice beach with an infinity pool facing the beach. Let's just like, you go do the things you want to do and I'll do the things I want to do. Maybe two hours after having that conversation, I have this random conversation with a security guard who sort of walks the premises. Um, and I meet his uh, girlfriend who was, um, she was mine and she talked about the community that she came from. So in those moments, you can choose joy, right? When things don't go well, you can say, okay, well, look, I, you know, care about you or I, I have no animosity or ill will towards anything that didn't go the way that I wanted it to go. But what I have right now, I can choose to find something about this that I really, really like. And every time I've sort of moved in the row with that perspective, things have really worked themselves out. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I, I like it. Um, now you're, you're here in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. You're working for the United Way of Southern Nevada. Yes. And so you moved here. I did. And then, um, this opportunity arose is that what happened yeah so i moved with no job no nothing i just packed Ooh. my stuff up um for four months it was hard i was getting all these calls to go back to miami and uh but i went to the united way's website and they had information on collective impact and collaboration and that was sort of the a wheelhouse that i worked in during my master's thesis and during just the work that i had done in, in miami so i <laughs> i actually applied for a position in our donor engagement team which is the folks who go out and kind of you know go into people's workplaces and say hey we're doing really great work would you support our work um so i applied for this position and the response i got back was like hey you're like not qualified for the position that you <laughs> applied for but we also think your experience is amazing so go ahead and come in so we came in and i mean i'm so once once again, things don't happen the way that you expect them to. But because I still came in anyways, 
I have this opportunity to have a position essentially kind of created around what I wanted to do because it was so in line with what United Way wanted to do. Um, and so my first position was all around just managing our coalition work. So the art and science of how do you get people to play nice together and kind of move towards a common goal. And it usually sounds really good on the front end, but there's a lot of um, semantics and specifics about how to make sure folks stay on the right track. Um, and so that was my role. And from that we were able to put on a really large conference uh, called CollabCon, which is all about how to collaborate and how to have healthy collaboration. And from there, we decided, you know, there's really a space for United Way to focus on community capacity building. And so how do we make stronger, uh, more efficient organizations that are going to be more inclusive of the, of the community in their work? Um, and if we can do that, the multiplier effect on making stronger organizations is going to touch way more people than we could touch with the work that we do alone. So that was kind of the impetus and kind of the step-by-step uh, -step process as to how uh, we've ended up with this community capacity building work that I'm really honored to be able to take the lead on. Yeah, that sounds incredible. It is. And what are the biggest challenges associated with that? Yeah. project because you can put on your rose colored glasses. And of sure. course we want everything to work perfectly. We want everybody collaborating effectively. Uh, but what are some of the challenges that you've experienced working with that program? Sure. I think, so one of the biggest concerns is always anything becoming too jargony. And so if we have a word like collective impact or we have a word like collaboration, any of these words, what do they mean? And when we say these words, what are we committing to? Um, and so I think you could maybe there are some like some presuppositions of some arguments that are made ahead of time or some some other things to think about. And so a lot of the difficulty right now is around making sure we're all on the same page and have shared definitions of what capacity building means and what it looks like, um, as well as who we think deserves to have their capacities strengthened. So usually when we say capacity building, we're thinking about our executive directors, we're thinking about our board of directors, but what about the folks who are actually doing the work kind of on the ground? What about the community members that you're working with? Uh, what about your volunteers? So there are all these uh, different folks in trying to think about an organization like a system. So every single one of these uh, different persons in their roles and just with their backgrounds all make up a node that's a part of a system. And we need to encourage and build the capacity of all those nodes so that the, so that the system itself is strengthened. That's kind of one of those um, underlying arguments that you kind of have to bring to the surface before you start to do the work. So it's been a lot of just, we need to set the table with, we've got the turkey, which is our systems thinking. We've got the cranberry sauce, which is our learning and development. There's all these other things that we want to make sure folks are understanding that they're agreeing to as we walk into this. So you're giving them um, tools about communication, um, other other types of information to help with those conversations? Is that? Yeah, a little bit. It's also a lot of coalescing all the folks who do trainings, learning opportunities, workshops, kind of this, the past couple of months of the past six months have really been, there are all these different conferences that are geared towards the same audiences. Well, how do we make sure that there isn't duplication there, that we're all collectively working together? Uh, so that's really step one of the conversation. The, the intention for United Way was never to uh, usurp the lessons and the and the folks who have lots of information to share with the community. But what we wanted to do is think really deeply about how we measure the impact of capacity building. So we can have all these workshops, and I'm sure someone heard something in the workshop that that's going to stick with them forever. I, I hope that that's the case. But how do we know that that's the case? And how does that change the bottom line for an organization? So if you did everything we think that you should do in terms of capacity building, all the like best or common practices, what should your organization look like? And so for us, 
the answer is that you have a learning organization. And so if I'm a learning, if I'm a person who's interested in learning, then I'm always seeking opportunities to grow. I'm always thinking about, did I do this the best way? Did I ask the right questions? Kind of taking a really curious approach to my work. And we want to build organizations that do that as well. So we're not the um, beginning, we're, we're the, hopefully the, maybe the beginning, but we're definitely not the end of all your learning opportunities. But we do hope that you've learned in a way that sort of builds a curiosity with you that you'll have as an organization. And so it's kind of like this, like, um, expansion from just a one person Googling a topic or, you know, signing up for a business review to an organization now has to have processes to think about when we do our, when we send out a survey to our clients, well, what do we do with the information that we get back? What's the feedback loop look like? Um, when we think about setting serious strategic plans or visioning for our organization, who's a part of the conversation? So those are all those kind of um, things to think about when you're thinking about organizational capacity building. And that's really our hope and focus is to bring everyone together to have those kind of conversations. And hopefully that seeps into how everyone's hosting their workshops and everyone's doing their work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking um, about my clients and the, and the work that we do. And it's, it's, there's so much overlap there. Absolutely. And um, it's just constant work. Absolutely. I think that's the one thing, you know, we can go on and on about how, how your program is set up mm-hmm. and how you deliver the material, what's important to you, who you have conversations with, but sure. it's constant work. Absolutely. You know, you can't put something into place and then just expect it to to uh, move on its own. Absolutely. And I think part of that is also being really honest as people, as uh, organizations, as industries about what we're doing and why. So the why part's really important. I think especially in the nonprofit space, and that's primarily the space that I've been in throughout my professional career, but there's an assumption that we're that you know, someone fell asleep last night and had a dream that they should give socks to all the kids in this neighborhood, right? That that's like, that they should do that thing. And they feel like that's a really good thing for them to do. And it is in and of itself, but is it the best use of a really scarce amount of resources that we have as a community that you have as an organization, so on and so forth. So we can only do so much with what we have. And how do we know that we're making the smartest and most efficient or effective choices that we could be? And that actually requires us to go back to before we made the decision about what we're going to do and ask ourselves why we're doing this. Why are we here? Why am I here? Uh, the When I was getting ready to write my thesis, I was working with a coalition of nonprofits who cared about youth development in a neighborhood called Overtown in Miami. And so this neighborhood is... Um, you know, a neighborhood with a lot of, currently with a lot of blight, but it has a lot of amazing history just in terms of Miami. I mean, I could go on and on about over time. I really love the community. There were all these different um, organizations. And originally I had this idea of looking at leadership in groups and out groups and LMX and all these like theories. And I'm sitting in this meeting and they get into this back and forth. It was like an argument, but it was like a heated discussion. And as I'm watching one organization is like, well, we need to, you know, make sure that people know they have to come to us first if they want to go into overtown. So they were really about being validated as a legitimate space. Another organization that, you know, had a really big name behind them backing their work, they were sort of like, we just want to do the work. We want to work with the kids. Another organization that didn't, that had a lot of trouble finding funding said, well, when are we going to be able to pull the money down? They coalesced around a large grant. And so it hit me in the long term, we all care about kids being safe, right? We all care about this big thing. But in the short term, we have short term needs and short term orders of priority that are different. And so I might care about the same three things, but maybe it's two, one, three for me and it's three, one, two for somebody else. And so it's really important to sit at the table and have that conversation. So a lot of times when I work with organizations, the first thing I say is like, why are you here? Like, what do you want out of this? 
And hopefully if we can if we can make it okay for nonprofits to have extrinsic needs, <laughs> like extrinsic benefit concerns, <laughs> if we can make it okay to talk about those things, we can go a really long way in restoring some trust and doing work that we continuously want to participate in because we know that it aligns with what our individual goals are. Um, that's a lot of the dance of collaboration and that's a lot of the work um, that I think um, can't be done unless we're really honest about, like, yes, we care about these really great, like, grandiose ideas, but pragmatically, we also care about some other things. We need to keep our doors open. We want people to respect the work that we do. Um, we want to make sure that we are having impact. So that's really, um, if I had to say, like, what was my kind of guiding um, approach to the work, it's be really honest about why you're here and just spend a little bit of time thinking about it and then be feel like it's a safe enough space to share it with everybody else. You'd be surprised who cares about the same thing or who doesn't care about it. And so it's fine. You can have 100% of what you want. We don't need to compromise on anything. So I'm kind of rambling, but. No, I, you know, <laughs> I think about just, I think about a lot of things while I'm listening to you. Um, politically, mm-hmm. we're divisive in this country now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that just communication in general is a challenge for people. And, um, it just makes me think, take a moment to ask why and understand. Yep. You know, if you're not understand, you know, if, if you can't connect or if you don't agree or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, just try and understand. And I think that's a great place to start when it comes to anything. Absolutely. So my, my brothers and I were talking about this. Uh, I have two older brothers and I never knew that so much of how I grew up was based on Alcoholics Anonymous. And so we joke about this. Um, yeah. So because of my father's experiences, we grew up saying the serenity prayer, and I never knew that it came from <laughs> like the spaces that it came from. Or, you know, just take it one day at a time. Or, you know, when you know better, you do better. There's just all these things. Um, and so we grew up in a very... Um, a house with a lot of reflexivity in it, a lot of self-reflexiveness in it. So a lot of thinking about how I do things and why I do it, and am I the best person? And in some spaces of my life, it's been somewhat detrimental. And so lately, I've been really working on, you know, don't don't overthink, no analysis paralysis, and and don't sell yourself short either. Um, it's hard sometimes when you're trying to make space for other people. Sometimes you don't make enough for yourself. Um, but we were just talking about the the idea of how lucky we were to be raised in a home where we were constantly challenged to be the best versions of ourselves that we could be. And we were held accountable by both of our parents to be and do that. Um, I didn't know how valuable that was. Once again, it goes back to why I love traveling so much because I have those moments to think about my why, um, to have my own little personal journal where I just write my own musings and my own thoughts. All of that comes from just being raised in a space of being really clear about your intentions. And that the uh, additional thing I'll say about that, part of um, my work is I'm really invested in bringing people to the table who aren't always invited to the table. Um, and so when we work in certain communities, for example, we've probably gotten to a point as a community where we perceive the nonprofit to wholly be able to speak on behalf of the people that they serve. And so there's a big piece because a group of people missing, um, when I first moved to Miami, I was doing these community leadership trainings, and the whole the measure of success for these uh, eight week seminars was that at the end, how many of our residents that went through it were now on boards, were now able to participate in the neighborhood associations, like how how were they civically engaged after they went through these sessions, and so that 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 was a measure of success. I was amazed at how difficult it was for the folks already at the table to be comfortable with someone else coming in 
And in part, it was recognizing that the people who you always talk about, their deficits have an amazing amount of assets and strengths. And so are you looking at people for what they're good at? Are you looking at people for what they're strong at? With all that said, the neighborhood and environments that I grew up in were, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many people would maybe choose to live in the neighborhoods that I lived in, but I'm grateful for the experience because there was so much, um, so many expectations of integrity where I grew up and clarity. And if I can't trust where you're coming from, and if I'm, if I don't, if I can't read you, then I don't spend any time around you. Um, and so that's a deeply ingrained part of me and knowing how much of me is based on the people from my family, the people that I know and love, who maybe other people will walk by and never even think about them, to know so much of my value system is is rooted in them is why I fight for those type of people to be at the table because they can speak to values that sometimes other people can't speak to or they can speak it a little more plainly than sometimes other people can. So sometimes I'll throw in like a... um, like a colloquial term or like a rap lyric or something when I'm kind of like doing things with lots of diverse people at the table because I want everyone to know that it's their space. So just trying to find those ways to connect with people. You'd be surprised how much time I spend knowing I'm going into a room where a lot of people listen to like country music, like trying to find a country music artist or like make a George Strait joke or like somehow figure out a way to kind of engage people. And it's all about pulling folks to the table because I truly believe that you have strengths that we just haven't articulated yet, but I know that they're there. And part of my job and my work is to help figure that out for the good of the group. Yeah. All right. So anybody who's listening right now, I think you should rewind (laughs) and listen to the last two minutes of this podcast again, because you're talking about a nonprofit environment where, you know, you have a group of people who are representing a large sample Mm -hmm. of our population. You have large size companies and you have executive teams that are making decisions for, you know, the person who just graduated from college and is on their, you know, their first day on the job. And something that, that I'm seeing a lot also is there's a generational gap. There's diversity gaps. There's, and the only way you're going to make true connection is if you take time to make true connection. Absolutely. You know, learn how. Go find a country song if you don't like country music. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you really do. You really have to go out of your way because there's such a big separation. Um, You know, we mentioned the political environment here Mm -hmm. a little while ago, but I see it in businesses all the time. We have three major generations that are working right now. And most people don't know, but two years ago, um, the millennial generation now – makes up a majority of our workforce. Well, yeah, yes, I think. I know, right? (laughs) Well, I'm Generation X. I'm kind of the little little person in the middle. The transition period. (laughs) Yeah, but I think there's a really big difference between those two generations. And you have all of those workers that are still in the same environment. And I'll also say, typically, the... um, the more experienced generation, they're leading these corporations and just not taking the time to connect. Yeah. You know. And so diversity is such as another one of those words where like it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, I can't remember the the groups and I, I used to teach this a long time ago on communication uh, work. When you think about the millennials, right, and you think about folks who grew up in the Great Depression, they actually have a lot of similarities. So when I graduated from college, from undergrad, we were in the the recession, right? And so it's really hard to find a job. It was just hard to do everything. And you had to like have five years experience for the entry level position, right? For like the year one position. Um, and so it, it made me very, uh, 
conscious of uh, lack or conscious of scarcity in a way that I don't know that we really, that baby boomers really didn't see because at the time when, you know, they were growing up and then the time when they were really thriving in their early 20s and 30s, we had a lot of abundance as a, as a community, as a country. And so we don't have that in the same way anymore. Things are changing. And so I, I'm a big fan of patterns. And I think a lot of your, a lot of perspective depends on the boundaries you set around your perspective. So yes, there are two or three generations that exist right now, but if you extend it out to six, you'll probably see some things happen that happened already. And so that's what I think about a lot of times. So I'll make the joke like, yeah, I know you guys feel this way about millennials, but honestly, we look more like your grandparents than you recognize right. a lot, a lot more like your parents in terms of how we make decisions. Additionally, sometimes there are just commonalities that exist across these generations. And it goes back to what we first started talking about in how I can just start randomly talking to people is I, there's an intuition inside of me that says we all want to connect to people. And so the one thing I will make sure to do is ask permission, right, for certain types of connections. When I came in this morning, I asked you, you know, do you mind um, if I hug you? And that's a, that's a thing for me. I never want to violate people's space. But in general, you'll feel this little thing inside of you if you listen to it that will say, hey, call your friend or, hey, like reach out to this person or, hey, just say hi or like just smile. And the more you lean into that, the more it becomes a louder voice. But I think it also makes it a lot easier for folks to step into spaces that are unfamiliar or to stand next to people that they don't Im immediately think that they connect with. Um, when I graduated from college, I was the first girl in my family to go, I guess, directly to college. My parents were the first two in their families to go to college, and then my brothers and I did. Um, and my parents went to college while they were raising us, so very different experience versus kind of like shipping me off to St. Louis, and then now I'm in this whole new city by myself. Um, so when I graduated, I didn't, uh, I never did any internships. I never did any of those things because I worked through college. So I always had um, like three jobs, two of which I'd be doing at the same time. <laughs> so I'm like tutoring while I'm like working at the police department, so on and so forth. Uh, and so I didn't know what to do. And so I Googled folks who worked in economic development, and I found this man, uh, Mark Waterhouse. And I've never met Mark in real life. I've never met him in person. But I sent him, either I sent him an email or I called him and I said, hi, you're doing exactly what I want to do and I don't know where to start. Will you help me? And so he said, sure, send me your resume, give me your things. And so he talked on the phone. He's like, take this out, make this lowercase, do this. And he was, there was just a reassurance he gave me. Um, we did not have the same life story in any way, shape or form, but I just reached out and he reached back. Um, so in general, and that, that story always makes me feel like I, I want to cry. And at some point I should probably go to Connecticut and like search for him. He's somewhere in the world. Um, but I'm so appreciative of moments like that. And I feel like it's a personal duty to do that for other people. Um, but it reminded me that some of the people who've really been in my corner didn't look anything like me. Some people did, but some people don't, but we might have this other thing that we really care about. So like we care about like economics and like these numbers and these equations, you have more in common with people than you think. I think you're right, though. It is about being um, actively pursuing those commonalities and appreciating when and where you differ. Yeah, and what I mean by proactive, too, is mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you have to be the one to ask. Right, right. But case in point, what you just said, if somebody reaches out to you or if somebody says hello, you know, that's your moment to yep. reach back. Absolutely. And it just doesn't take much effort. It could be a smile back. It could be a wave, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, earlier on in the conversation also, um, you were talking about experiences and mm -hmm. um, you were talking about your father and how, you know, you always looked up to him and mm -hmm. you didn't realize that you were doing the same thing for him that he was doing for you. Yeah. And it's yeah. those moments in time that you don't realize you can just impact someone and it just takes a split second. Yeah. And it's so powerful. You yeah, know, I have a, um, so my 
grandmother, my mother's mother, um, her name was Catherine Ireland. She passed away in 2008, and she was an amazing person. Um, she grew up in South Carolina, um, moved to Reading, Pennsylvania, met my grandfather. They got married, and they moved to Rochester. They were the first people to move there. And so some people in my family might dispute that. So I'm sure oh, okay. wherever I post this, there'll be a cousin who disputes this. But so, I'll keep an eye out on right. the comments. <laughs> um, but they were sort of the uh, the door for everyone else who ended up coming to Rochester. So I grew up in this city where I have like a cousin on every block. I have this huge family. Um, and I'm so appreciative for having this huge family. But my my grandparents were always these trailblazers. But what my grandmother used to say to me, and I didn't know, I thought she was just saying it, but I didn't know how much it meant to her until after she passed and people sort of uh, regurgitated it to me. She saw in me an opportunity to do things that she didn't get a chance to do. And so in part, the traveling, the being really nomadic, the moving around, the having these experiences, I feel like in part is continuing a legacy from my grandmother to my mom and to me of these just amazing women who have are just like good people. Um, I talk actually, I'm, I'm um, a personal crusade to tell everyone to go see a therapist. And so I talk to my therapist about this a lot, just the pressure I had growing up to be like a good <laughs> Because they're just these women where, like, someone's like, oh, Carrie's your mom. Oh, my God. Like, she's amazing. We love Miss Butler. <laughs> Everyone calls her Mrs. Butler. Um, but just my grandmother's soul was so kind and so good. And so I've always wanted to keep that. But I also wanted to be the next version of what she was. And so maybe Vegas isn't the city where, like, all of my family moves to. Maybe none of these cities are. But every time I do these things, I feel like I'm experiencing and tasting a little bit of freedom that maybe she felt like she didn't get to have. Um, and I don't think she regretted her life in any way, but I'm excited to feel like I carry on like the same flame in a different torch in that sort of way. So probably my, my grandmother and my father and my mom as well are just people for me where there are stakes in the ground. And so no matter whatever space I move into, they kind of remind me of where I came from um, and what my like niche skills are that I inherited from other people. So Yeah. And what makes you care about that? Yeah. I don't know. I come from this like protocol family. So I didn't wear sweatpants until I got to college. <laughs> okay. I um, didn't wear so the, And those, that was the accountability and yeah, the expectations exactly. you were talking about earlier. Exactly. It was just ingrained in you from the moment you yeah, you came yeah. into this world. Yeah. And my, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother growing up because, I mean, a village raised me. So, you know, I ran track. I had my coach who was like my second mom. My my parents were in school at night. My grandpa, We were at my grandparents' house. Um, and she had the cable and she had like, like sugar snacks. So I really enjoyed being there. <laughs> um, but... There were, I don't know, there's there's always this, like, you represent more than just yourself. And when you move through the world, the way you move in the world impacts more than just you. And you leave, um, you follow a legacy and you leave one as well. And so it's your opportunity to choose what that looks like. I've lost a lot of people that I really deeply care about over the past month. And and it was, like, right as I went into this, like, super long trip. And so I kind of felt a little guilty. I'm like, at a party, like, yay. And then I remember these things. But... All of these people were just these amazing people where when you, if you asked three people who knew them well, what they had to say about them, what the adjective would be or what the verb would be, it would be kindness, it would be loyalty, it would be integrity, it would be all these things. And so I've always, knowing that we all can't live forever, I've always been just like really thoughtful about like, what's my, what do I leave in the world when I'm gone? Um, I think we all have purpose. And so for me, it's always been, my purpose is to help people help themselves. 
So if I can figure out ways to make that little spark go off to where you're like, oh, okay, I know how to solve this myself, that always feels really good to me. Um, and so I think a mix of really being clear about what my purpose is and also really wanting to, like, I just want to leave something in the road. Maybe that's the selfish thing in me and I'm okay with that. Um, but I really want to leave the road better than I found it. And I think I get that from the people that came before me. Okay. And the work that you do now, you're, you're sharing that. Absolutely. You're sharing that. Absolutely. So what drives you? You talked about your family a lot, mm-hmm. um, but it sounds like your family is on the East Coast. Yeah. Right? Is everybody yeah. in the East Coast yeah. and you're here in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So you're here on your own and you travel on your own. So I don't think that <laughs> that's an uncomfortable thing for you, but you're not surrounded right. physically by your family, this group of people who've really pushed you to right. be the person you are. So how, how, who, what, you know, what, continue what drives you and motivates you yeah I think that's why I needed this trip that I just took so I needed to kind of touch my family like physically and say hello and get hugged um but Facebook is actually really good social media is actually really good in terms of my I mean, my family's huge I have nine t- 11 aunts and uncles uh 36 first cousins so we have our own little Facebook groups and we have our own things okay. um so there's kind of uh that opportunity to still build with each other um I do. I spend a lot of time in prayer. I spend a lot of time, um, you know, I grew up reading Lao Tzu and Confucius and the Torah and like just all these different books. And so I spend a lot of time putting in, immersing myself back into that. But also I force myself to go outside and build relationships with people because you can, you can, you can very easily get used to kind of being in all your books and in all your papers or Facebook. Yeah. Or Facebook. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. Um, I'd have like a little timer on my computer, <laughs> but, uh, I think it's, intentionally, while I'm looking for love in the road, I'm giving it to. So I feel really good when I go volunteer. Something. I feel like I'm very cliche. So I literally go volunteer when I'm sad. So I go to like the homeless shelter when I'm not in a good mood and I'm like just trying to cheese and smile. But I think it's, um, I try and be really intentional about putting love out in the world while I'm also seeking it from people who maybe aren't my family. And I mean, when you grew up where you couldn't even sneeze in the library without your mom hearing about it and like calling you or like, I remember getting a church, a solo in my church gospel choir. And like before I even got to my grand aunt's house, she knew because my grandmother called her because she was like outside the door. So there's nothing wrong with not <laughs> being kind of surrounded by your family all the time. Um, but I definitely over the years have come to appreciate and respect that. I miss it. Um, and so I think often about, you know, should I be back on the East Coast? But uh, there's my one of my favorite books is The Alchemist. And so in that book, uh, he talks about... Uh, you know, when you are sort of moving in your personal legend or your purpose, the universe kind of conspires to help you achieve that. And so I think when I decided to make this move to Vegas, there are all these other, once I moved in what I thought I was supposed to do, just all these other things that happened around that. And so I'm very grateful and fulfilled by all the other things that have happened. So even if it's not my family, amazing sets of friends, amazing professional opportunities, I've felt welcomed in professional spaces that don't have a lot of people that look like me. And I've still felt welcomed in those spaces. And so love is love, even if it's not the people I'm necessarily related to. And so I've been trying to choose to be grateful about the love I do have around me. Positivity. Yeah. Good vibes. It's a choice, right? Absolutely. Something you mentioned as well. All right. Now I'm thinking about your, um, all of the (laughs) topics we've covered so far, which have really been all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, remind me again what you studied. 
undergrad? So my undergrad was at economics and then uh, my minor was Middle Eastern North African studies. Okay. And then you went on to graduate school? I did. I did. Uh, it was a MSED in community and social change. Okay. It's very clear to the point. <laughs> yeah. And then you were also part of the Miami Music Project. Yes. So, yep. so music is something that's important to you? Yes. So my when I first graduated from undergrad, I went on tour with a rap group as their background singer and their uh, road manager. That was my first experience in really? operations management. Absolutely. It was amazing. Oh man, I wish I could <laughs> I wish I could remember the name of the movie. I'll put it in the show notes. Please. But it's um it's basically a movie about background singers. Uh-huh. And it's a documentary. And um, you know, just just the life that they live, but the the background singers who have toured with major uh major artists and they Absolutely. just don't get any credit. You know, but there are just some, there's some amazing talent out there. So, Uh, but yeah, I'll put that in the show notes (laughs) and, uh, and now back onto topic. Um, Sorry, I have that effect on people. I apologize. (laughs) No, and I'm the same way. So I'm enjoying this conversation. Um, what are you, so you talk about what drives you, what Mm -hmm. you're passionate about now, five years from now, 10 years from now, you know, you just have this, this innate drive to help others, community, to self-learning, mm-hmm. you know, educating yourself. What's what's the next thing for you? What's the big picture for you? Yeah. So I've always seen myself as coming in and out of multiple different communities and helping them figure out sort of how to do the work better and smarter. So five to 10 years from now, I see myself still doing that. Um, more than likely is sort of kind of a um, a what's the proper word I want to look for in sort of like a boutique way. And so one of the things, one of the terms I really like is uh, this term called infopreneurs. And so kind of this um, mix of information and entrepreneur. And so how do you become a person where when someone thinks they have an idea, they come to you, right? And so they're like, Takiya, like, I kind of want to do this. And you're like, oh, have you heard about this? Have you heard about this thing? Have you heard about that? So on and so forth. Um, or just making yourself a space that people come to and they know that there's just going to be an added context. So you make things richer and deeper. And so I see myself doing that. I see myself doing it in a larger, in larger markets and larger spaces, which probably means I'm going to have to do a better job of kind of um, honing in. <laughs> getting to the point of my pyramid um, right. where um, I'm really clear on exactly what I'm offering. But five to 10 years, I see myself kind of traveling around probably very similar in the past three weeks of just on a plane in and out, kind of going to places doing that. I've never heard the the term infopreneur, mm-hmm. right? Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah. Is Does that exist now? Is there somebody that you can name that has that title or is this? Is there someone I can name that's an infopreneur? It's hmm. a really good question. Is there, or is this your personal vision? So it's a I did not make the word up. Okay. Um, so the word existed, and I think it kind of exists in some um, organizational behavior spaces and some kind of like business spaces. Um, it stuck. T- so whenever people ask me about what they want to do, I have kind of these three, uh, like a Venn diagram of three circles. And so one of them are just like, what are the things that you're interested in? And the other ones are like, what are your interests? So, or excuse me, not your interests. So there's what are you interested in? And then there's what are you like good at? And then they're kind of like, what are your, not strengths, but what are your like proclivities? Like I can't think of like the proper word that I want to use, but somewhere between, you know, I'm really, I'm a really fast typer. I really enjoy um, communicating with people and I really care about animals is a job doing marketing for an animal research fund. So it's kind of like between all those things that you care about and you're good at. 
So for me, I really care about helping people help themselves. That's important to me that everyone has voice and choice in the world. I'm really good at explaining things to people. So in general, there's always an analogy in the back of my head or some sort of like cultural reference. But then I'm also like really strong at like planning things. So like, okay, you said you want to do this. Okay, these are all the steps that we're supposed to do. Okay, this is what we're going to do. Maybe it's a little sister in me. I don't know what it is, but like when it comes to... I don't even, I think I'm not supposed to use the word bossy anymore. Like, I think we're kind of changing the, the words that we use, but I've always been really good at being very direct about those things. Um, and so those three, three things in the middle of that is infopreneur. In the middle of that, I, for me, I think, is kind of someone who does a good job of transliterating information to someone else, someone who really cares about, yo, you should have the right to have this information, right? That, that this is something that you should have. And then I can break that down to you in a way, and I can sort of help you figure out the process and procedure to actually make that happen. So in between all of that is an infopreneur. Okay. Um, what's your definition of leadership? My definition of leadership? That is a very hard question. Yeah. And, and while you're thinking, yeah. um, yeah, I, you know, the premise behind this podcast is that there is no one definition Absolutely. of leadership and everybody has their own view of what that looks like, sure. you know? So I know there is a, there's a moment where people decide to make you into a leader. Um, but I think that there's one thing for like, who do we decide to be at the front of something or to put their face on the front of something or their name. But then there's also how do you, I keep using the word move today, how do you move in the world? And so I think leaders are the folks where even when it's something that they might not want to do or something that they're afraid of, there's a certain amount of courage in a leader. There's a certain amount of empathy and thoughtfulness in a leader. And there's a certain amount of knowing that this is bigger than yourself that's necessary in a leader. Um, and so one of my favorite persons, and when, actually the book I'm reading right now uh, is called Fire on the Prairie. And so it's about Harold Washington, who was the first black mayor of Chicago. And so Harold actually died the day I was born. So like literally he like had a heart attack and then like I was born. <laughs> so um, I learned about him uh, while when I was turning 25. Um, it's every year I have a kind of a model for myself. And so as I learned about him, he, one, when he had the opportunity to become mayor. So he had previously been a congressman. Um, and then you know, I think Obama ended up taking his spot like in Congress like it was. So he was, before Obama, there was Harold Washington. Um, and so he was essentially invited to come and run for mayor on behalf of the black community, right? They said, okay, this is the person that we want to run. And his first response was, no, you need to get me 50,000 votes. If you get 50,000 people to register to vote, I'll, I'll do it. I'll run. And they're like, wait a minute, like, that's impossible. How are we going to do that? Like, we don't even get that many people to turn out or register. So they do this whole huge voter registration dive called Come Alive October 5. So Soft Sheen, which is a hair care company, um, like does these uh, advertisements. They're like, Come Alive October 5. It's like a whole thing. Um, and they, they get the votes. They get more votes than he even asked for. And that's one of the first things that stick out. There are a million other lessons about him. But one of the first things that stuck out was he could have easily said, okay, yeah. Like the minute someone opened a door for you, you could have said, yeah, sure. But he was thoughtful enough to know that you're going to need those votes because when you really boil down to who you're running against and how other people are going to move, it was a very strategic decision to say that you needed that. And he did it at the most, at the point where he had the highest leverage to tell people to do that. There's another uh, aspect of him that I greatly respect, which is him reminding folks that he didn't want to be the savior. He didn't want to be the one person to save things. When you come in and out of communities, as often as I do, 
you have to remember that this is ultimately somebody else's, that the decisions you make, someone else has to sleep with those, not you. And so there has to be a respect for the space that you're in and the people that you work with. And I always felt like at least I didn't get a chance to meet him, right? But in the, in the spaces where I've got to learn a lot about him, it's been that um, respect for the work is bigger than just me. And it has to be owned by people, by more than just myself. Um, that, that to me is important. I think when you look through history and you look at certain patterns, and so it's important to look at there's this leader that exists. What did the world look like before they started leading? What did it look like when they led? And then actually, what did it look like after? So when they left that space, what did it look like? And for me, a good leader leaves something afterwards that's better than when they came in, not necessarily during. So Chicago has changed immensely since right here, Washington became mayor. And a lot of it has to do with him being there. But I've just always thought very hard, especially coming from black community of we've had sort of... um Martyrs, where we've had folks where we've said, okay, this person at this period in time, like, represented the thoughts of like 90% of people in this community. And that's not always necessarily true. And I'm sure a lot of those folks probably felt, I would hope some of them, and I know Harold Washington did, felt like, you know, I don't want this to all rest on me because if it rests on me, God forbid something happens. Well, what do we do as a community? And this is all of ours to own. I say all that to say that I think a leader has to have an idea or a concept bigger than themselves, still be humble about it, know kind of how to connect dots and know how to sort of pull people along the way. And while they do that, build those people up to be able to carry that on when they're gone. Yeah. And I can't help but think about our conversation earlier, you know, making those connections and really reaching out and understanding all, you know, all the needs of your community or who you're representing. Yeah. 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 And that's just being curious. It's just asking Mm -hmm. questions when you're in leadership positions so I'm, I'm grateful for when I first moved here, um, I would get called an expert a lot. And that word makes me so uncomfortable <laughs> because there's so much responsibility in that word. Um, so I, I am humbled by it and I appreciate it. But uh, I, th- I think what I came to understand was, look, Tiki, at some point, everyone needs to know everything that's in your head. And that's where it comes back to being an infopreneur, that of sharing information with people. So at some point, you need to gather information. You need to be able to sort of give in and... and, and um, leave it for other people. And then for myself personally, it becomes what are the, how do I know that I did that? So what are kind of like the metrics of doing that? So I'm holding a conference, the community capacity building work, the facilitation things. Whenever I walk into these spaces though, to prime folks to be able to hear what I'm saying, right? To produce listening and others. It's been actually just walking in before anyone knows what anybody's titles are, no name tags and just speak to people just say hi and sometimes come in in sneakers so I come in really unassuming um, and just say like hey and ask where are you from like what what was your day no yes or no questions Um, a lot of like just tell me about yourself and look someone in the eye when they tell you and say thank you for the information you got all those things especially with a mind where I can take in a lot of different information all the time all those things added together make me really powerful when I get in front of the room and I'm like so remember that time when you did this or you see how that relates to this and you know how to connect with people and that transliteration of ideas that's based on being able to have someone hear it in ways that they hear and know and understand Um, so I think that's one of those really good starts of a leader is to be curious ask questions and actually do something with the answers that you get back yeah are you ever scared yeah, all the time. How do you handle that? Um, I do a lot of calling my parents. Um, I sit and put my feet on the ground and try and feel every piece of my body. So the mindfulness, um, I know when I feel anxious. And in general, I know why I'm feeling anxious. And so if I just stop, then usually I'm pretty clear about, you know what, it's because it's a little bit of time. 
you know what, it's because you think that you can't do this. And so some breathing, some mindfulness, and if I can't do it on my own, then it's calling someone and being like, hello, I'm scared. Can you mind just, I don't need you to solve it. I just need you to talk me through it. I just need you to listen. And and that's it. So it's usually how I kind of get through it. Or I just walk really slow. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I climb the uh, my, uh, Mayan ruins in Belize, and I have a crazy fear of heights. Like, I don't ever want to be off the ground. <laughs> and so... Uh, when I could get up, right? I could get up because someone was encouraging me, but no one was encouraging me coming down because they're thinking, oh, you're already up. You did it already. But I'm like, no, the whole point is that I don't want to fall down. <laughs> so yeah, these kind of like stairs that are falling down. So I said, okay, well, look, you can't live at the top of the mine ruins. You need to go home. So what you're going to do is you're just going to like put your hands on the stairs yeah. and you're just going to like scoot down the stairs. So luckily no one else was there. It took me like five minutes to get to the bottom of like scooting. So sometimes it's just like taking on what you can take, right. doing that little bit and see you got through that. Now you can get through the next one. It's like the Alcoholics Anonymous stuff back yeah. again. And you know, you may not move through it the same way somebody else does. You had, you know, you literally had Absolutely. to sit down and scoot down, but you got it done. So that is you know. the story of my life. <laughs> the story of my life. I actually, uh, I failed out of college my freshman year. Um, I, I think... I might hold the record for the only person who fell out of college from doing too much community service. Like I wasn't partying. I wasn't, I was like literally doing community service. Um, and there are lots of other things going on, but I spent a lot of the rest of my time in college trying to fight and prove that I could graduate on time, that I could do what everybody else did. And I, um, so it took a long time for me to recognize and look, I'm moving at my own pace. And when I get something, I get it. And so if it takes me five days to read the page, it's okay because I remember that page verbatim. And I'm like, you know, on this page, this person said this. So the older that I get, the more I've come to trust um, the way that like my road is paved and the way that whatever it's going to look like, I've come to kind of trust that. Um, And I guess some people call that faith, whatever they want to call it. But I'm afraid a lot. I'm doing a lot of things that I've never seen someone like me do. Um, But I feel like if I do it, there are know, three of my uh, young female cousins who are either in college or just finished college. And I told them via Facebook post that when I see you thrive, it actually is reinforcing for me. Because when I failed out of college, my greatest fear was that I was meant to be on Section 8. I was meant to be living in a project that I wasn't supposed to be at a top 20 university. I wasn't supposed to be those things. And so a lot of my early, you know, late teens, early 20s was fighting against what I thought was supposed to be um, the tide I was supposed to swim in. So when I keep going and I look back and now there's like other like little salmon like swimming with me, I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, I'm not crazy. Okay, yeah, I do deserve to be where I'm at. So it's kind of like a cycle in that sort of way of if you just take that little step, somebody sees you taking that step and then they take it too. And before you know it, you've got this whole group of people around you where you all are talking about those times where you weren't sure, but you did it anyways. So sometimes you just have to be that first person to kind of like lead the charge. And then eventually there's a threshold where you just get everybody else to kind of be bought in as well. Yeah. Um, What's your biggest challenge that you face now in your life? Yeah. I am trying to balance the amount of time I put into other people's communities with how much I put into my own. So in that sense, trying to have um, that integrity about the things I'm saying other people should do. So um, in the area I live in, in Vegas, it's, hey, do I even know who my commissioner is? It's like, hey, do I? Like, am I going to the homeowners association meetings? So trying to balance that. Um, like, I should be a good citizen too. Yeah. Um, so that's actually, that's one of my biggest challenges, that and calling my mom as often as she'd like me to call her. Right. Are probably <laughs> my two biggest challenges. So you grew up on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Now you live on the West Coast. Yes. 
What is the one thing that stands out in your mind the most that's the biggest difference between the two coasts? Well, so besides the lack of humidity, which is probably a yes. Vegas <laughs> desert thing, not like a coastal <laughs> thing. Um, so besides the lack of humidity, it's probably um, the way that folks want to be spoken to, which is a leadership challenge for me. Um, I'm a very blunt person um, and very like, okay, well, look, well, this is the answer. Like, let's just, let's go. Um, or, you know, you're with a bunch of people from New York. We usually are pretty like loud and boisterous when we're excited. And a lot of my friends from California will say like, Hey, like, just relax. Like, why are you so, I'm like, I am relaxed. I'm just, I'm happy. Yeah. So that kind of, um, the tone of your voice, um, and just sort of the decibels that you're at when you're loud. Those are like the biggest, hugest differences in me, at least. And that's probably really very based on the fact that I'm just like loud. So, right. <laughs> it's almost like having, um, a different accent. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Just something that stands out and you, you have to adjust. I'm actually, so when I moved to Miami, I had to learn how to speak slower because you have so many uh, people where English is not their first language. That also taught me about how much we think that language proficiency means intelligence, which is not necessarily the same thing. Good point. Um, so when I came to Vegas, I had to snap my vocabulary back and snap the pace of me talking back um, because I realized I got so used to talking slow <laughs> that folks thought I didn't know what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. So it's just like uh, back and forth. Um, and another thing I will say is that the all of the communities are changing. They're becoming diverse. But right, I've intentionally decided to live in places that were really diverse places. So I lived in Little Havana. Everyone in my neighborhood was Honduran and Nicaraguan. Uh, when it was Three Kings Day, I put a shoe outside my apartment. There's candy in my shoe. Like I'm, I'm used to being in a space where I'm around other people. Vegas is learning what diversity looks like, where it's not just white, black, and brown. That Within the browns, there are a bunch of different shades and countries and places. So when I first uh, came here, I was in a meeting, and uh, you know, someone said, well, you know, we have a lot of Hispanics, so we should see if they... Um, you know, have all their paperwork, like if they have social security numbers. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't they? Because I lived in Miami. Everyone, there was like wet foot, dry foot. So there are all these Cubans where as soon as you land, you <laughs> can get your green card. So for me, it's, well, what about there's someone from Venezuela? There's someone who's Argentinian. There's someone who's from Colombia. They all have very different cultures. Um, they're just because someone's black, they could be Haitian, they could be Jamaican. There are all these different things. Um, and so Vegas is at a point where there needs to be that larger consciousness, that diversity is more than just literally the color of your skin, but there's so much more about you that makes you up. There's someone who could look like me and have grown up in a totally different environment. A kid that looks like me grew up in the same income bracket, similar parents, maybe our parents have the same stories, but you grew up in Vegas. The way you move in the world is different than me. I grew up in Rochester, New York. Huge history of the suffrage movement was there. Uh, the Niagara movement was turned into the NAACP, Frederick Douglass. Just this history of civic engagement where I grew up. The way I think about how you should participate in your community is so different from a place where, you know, it's a younger city. Everyone pulls into their garage and closes the door. We don't engage in the same way. So I look forward to kind of seeing Vegas as, as we grow and we get more people coming in and we become kind of diverse of our economy and all these things happen in our state. I'm really looking forward to new renewed conversations about what diversity looks like, what equity looks like, um, how we acknowledge all these different people in their languages, all these sorts of things. Yeah. And that's a good point. We recently had a guest, um, Wendell Blaylock was on the Mm -hmm. show and I'll place a link to his podcast, but he told me that, or he shared that, um, Las Vegas is one of the most diverse cities in the country. Yep. And I did not know that. Yep. And, you know, we had a conversation about how Vegas is not a very old place Mm -hmm. and we are living it. We're, 
and it's good to be conscious of it. And um, it makes me want to go out and have purposeful conversations with people and really start to learn for sure. I have a very uh, good friend based out of San Francisco who has an organization called Free Intelligent Conversation. And so he goes to parks and he just brings these cards that have random questions like, when was your most scariest moment? When was your whatever? And just random people come up and they just have these conversations every time. So I am a person who cries anytime I see asset-based community development. So like Kung Fu Panda's on and all the pandas realize that they have like skills that they can use to save their community and I'm in tears. Yeah. So I'm watching this stuff happen in these parks and I'm like crying. Like this is so beautiful. People are coming together. I love it. Um, but yeah, there are, there are lots of organizations now where the whole intent is to encourage people to have not even necessarily uncomfortable conversations, but just talk to somebody that you wouldn't necessarily talk to. Um, and you don't, it's not like you have to go out of your way. Like this person is the person who looks like I'd be the least comfortable. So I'm going to start there. Just talk to people um, and be vulnerable. I think more so than just being uncomfortable is about, are you okay with being as vulnerable as you need to be? So I talk a lot about the mistakes I've made or the things that I maybe did that somebody else wouldn't have done the right, the same way. I talk about them on purpose because I want folks to know that when I walked into a room, um, whether I'm wearing a cape, whether I'm wearing whatever it is that I'm wearing, um, I'm not defined by what I didn't do right. I'm not defined by like one instance or space in my life that I'm something bigger and deeper than that. And what I'm curious about now at this phase of my life is well, what is everybody else's essence? What do you feel like your purpose is? Like, why are you here? What do you care about? I've had to learn how to ask that question on the West Coast in a way that doesn't sound confrontational. So how do I actually articulate my curiosity and not like uh, seem like I'm feigning judgment when I talk to people? Yeah. What does that sound like? I don't know. So sometimes it's a lot of precursors like, hey, um, or it's actually starting with describing myself. So I'll say, uh, you know, I was just thinking, I was reading this book and it was talking to me about, you know, start with your why or whatever else. I think Simon Sinek talks about starting with your why. Um, and I'll say, what do you think your why is? So it's a lot of pricing it as you are helping me through my journey. And that's true. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. a lie to say that when I hear from you and I learn from you, I become a better version of myself and I want that. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of sandwiching with a lot of precursor. And then at the end saying like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That was amazing. And like, I can't wait to see what you do with that. And if there's any way I can help. Um, so I think right now that's where I'm at. There might be a shorter way. Yeah. <laughs> letting people know I'm just curious. Um, sometimes I'll also say like, you know, listen, I'm going to ask you this question and I'm just asking you the question. I have no ulterior motives and why I'm asking you, but you know, then ask the question. Usually that lets folks know, Hey, you can put your guard down. What I'm going to say, I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but you know, it's not with the intent of doing you any harm. Yeah. So all very interesting. Yeah. Not so different. Um, you know, earlier you mentioned that you, you know, you, you have this passion, um, and you're doing these all this work. You think about big things, mm-hmm. but you're also a doer. Yeah. yeah. How do you pen? How do you put pencil to paper? You, do you use any tools? Do you have any daily routines or anything that you can share with us that really helps you accomplish yeah. um, all of these goals that you have? Yeah. So. Part of managing having ADHD is having really good routines. Um, so when I wake up in the morning, I go to the gym, I have a ginger lemon shot, and I like, you know, I do these things in the morning. Um, I use project management software in my professional life and in my personal because <laughs> I'm very forgetful. Yeah. What, what tool do you use? So I use a teamwork PA. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're one of my faves um, because I'm just able to put in the dates and the documents and kind of keep everything all in one place. Those things are only as good as you use them. So I agreed, hundred percent. So the the biggest thing, the most raw thing I do to maintain my routine is to set time for setting my routine. 
So it's, you know, Sunday or, you know, Wednesday or Friday. It's usually a day that I take stock and I ask myself, like, okay, what have I done so far? Am I still in the right place? So it's it's choosing those moments of reflexivity. If I just do those, I'm usually actually pretty good with everything else. Yeah. Do you use time blocking or anything like that on a calendar? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah when I know I have a lot of things going on um, or I know that I don't have a lot of time to dilly dally. So sometimes you need the time to just think and be in the shower and come up with stuff. And sometimes you just like, just do it, <laughs> just start and do it. Um, so I do use time blocking. Um, I definitely try and time at minimum time block my work day and my evenings and my mornings. So I actually wake up at five o'clock in the morning and I go into work around nine. So everything that everyone else does when they get home from work, I actually do in the morning. I wash my dishes. I like do laundry. I do all those things in the morning. Um, in the evening, it's all turning down. So it's all a bath and darkness and jazz and, you know, the news, not so much the news of the day lately, um, but normally yeah. like the news. Is it stressful? Yeah, it's very stressful. <laughs> well, it's stressful and it's sad. So yeah. it's a lot of, man, I, it, it always um, is unfortunate for me to watch people make decisions that are counter to their own good. Now, it's not my place to tell you what your own good is, but when and where you're making decisions that like on their face for where you are right now is not great and you make that decision anyways, I'm always kind of like, man, you know, but maybe there's a purpose that I don't see. So I kind of step back from it. I also think that history repeats itself. And so if we look at um, reconstruction into Jim Crow, if we look at just certain spaces in time, systems tend to snap back. So when you have moments where you push and you push and you push on the edges, usually there's going to be some resistance to that, and it can usually be really great and large. So I don't think that our current um, experiences or the current things that we're going through now mean that anything else withers away. It's just kind of like we're on a longer continuum. Once again, if you expand the boundaries out, you kind of realize, oh, this has sort of happened before, and eventually we kind of get here. The biggest thing through all of this is who, who and how do you want to live? Like who, who do you want to be in the world? And what do you want the world to look like and be like? We ask that of communities. We ask that of people. What does it look like to thrive? And I don't know. Like, what does it look like to thrive today or this week? America has a um, a running theme of, like, this American dream that you can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And if you are, if you try hard enough, you can do anything you want to do. My parents are a really great example that I believe that, I do believe it to be true. But I also think that, um we all can't have a mansion. We all can't be millionaires. We can't all be billionaires. You can be kind, though. Everyone can be really nice. The things that are free feels like those are the things that we're not doing and we're all searching for things that are very scarce. And so in that, a lot of my conversations over the past couple of weeks have been about this, that like, what are, like, can you just choose joy? Can you just be kind? Like, it costs you nothing to be like, just say thank you, like these sort of things. And so I've been trying to figure out, like, how do I reiterate that stuff in these spaces or try and find a middle ground so I'm reading this book. Um, I had to take the book cover off because, so the book is called White Trash and it's the, the history of 4,000 years of like being poor and white. And the guy who wrote it, I grew up in the Appalachian, Mount, or Appalachian Mountains and he talks a lot just about the perspective of growing up and being poor and white. And I'm reading the book because I want to understand because I'm just trying to understand things other than myself. So I grew up reading the Native Sons and the like black boys and the like their eyes were watching God. I mean, I was reading these things when I was like seven years old. So now I'm at a space where like, okay, I, I have a lot of this context, but I want to learn about other people. I want to learn about how you tell your own story and not necessarily in relation to myself. And so that's what I, that's how I've been trying to use the frustration that I feel over the past, you know, the like, election cycles and all these things that are happening is just, man, like, I don't know why y'all are making that decision. It makes me really sad that you're making a decision that I don't think is in your best interest. 
let me maybe try to understand where that's coming from for you because maybe it is actually satisfying something for you that I just can't see. So once again, that's the curiosity. That's the always trying to learn to be better. It's all those things where like I got those core parts of my iceberg and so they kind of lead how I deal with most things. Yeah. And you mentioned you had to take the book cover off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it just so people can see the name of the book? Is that? Yeah, well, so the the so right when you publish a book and you write, you make a book cover, usually authors don't have a lot of control over their book covers. So in like 400 point font is where, is, are the words white trash. And then the subtext is like 12 point font. So yeah. it's going to be hard for someone to sort of read it. Um, it is. So my name is Arabic. Um, I grew up in New York state during uh, 9-11 and flew a lot. And so I would always be secret search, just always. Yesterday night, I actually forgot that I shouldn't wear headscarves when I go to the airport because I got secret search. I'm like, of course I did. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I pay for TSA pre-check. <laughs> so um, I have had to be really um, thoughtful and careful about how other folks perceive me because I'm very aware that my safety is tied to it. Um, I only have nephews and half-brothers, and so I grew up around a lot of men. And so even over the past couple of years, which is all the shootings and the cases and things being dropped and just sort of just all these different violent acts that have happened, there's been this ongoing fear that you don't know that you'll be safe just doing the everyday regular things that you do. And so it seems really deep and over-thoughty, but I really take it off because I don't want to find myself in an argument on a bus or find myself in a position where, like, I'm actually approaching it from, like, I want to understand and I'm just curious and I don't want to find myself in a confrontational space with people. So a lot of times when I'm reading these books, it's mainly about my safety. Yeah. So, which is, I don't know if it's unfortunate. It's just kind of the life that I have right um and there's also like really other amazing things about my life that i really appreciate i really like my name um but i also recognize that it, it gives um sometimes it can give off um impressions or thoughts or connect dots in other people's heads that i can't control so yeah and that can go with anybody's name right absolutely but, but yeah it makes you think there's so many different perspectives on everybody absolutely. everything yeah you have me thinking over here <laughs> all right so what podcasts are you listening listening to these days so my the one i most recently listened to is uh this american life i think everyone starts with this american life yeah um, they had an interesting one about a monkey that was like Peter was suing on behalf of a monkey for a selfie that the copyright infringement is really interesting uh i listened to backstory which is a really cool podcast on patterns and american history so those 1700s 1800s 1900s this has happened before it's basically the mm -hmm. subtext um I like lore. I'm so scary, so I don't know why I keep listening to lore like by myself. <laughs> I need to stop. Um, it's kind of like a horror, American horror kind of podcast. Um, Modern Love, uh, Mic Check. Um, I have like a really long list. I have kind of like the, oh, you said you like podcasts. My favorite uh, one recently in the past couple of years has been Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell. The idea of rethinking about something. Uh, he had one about Wilt Chamberlain. So funny, like, bar fact. My father's uncle played against Wilt Chamberlain the night he made 100 points. Wow. Right, very, like, very random fact. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, we have a picture, in my, we had a picture in my great-grandmother's house with, like, Wilt Chamberlain had signed it and he's holding a poster. Ma uh, Malcolm Gladwell has an episode about that night. 
and the fact that Will Chamberlain made all those baskets because he was shooting underhand. I can't even tell you what it looks like because I don't play basketball, but he was shooting underhand, and that's the one time he ever shot like that, and he made 100 points. So he writes in his book, Will Chamberlain writes in his book, you know, I knew that that was a better way for me to shoot, but I didn't want to because I didn't want all my other teammates to think that I was a punk because I was shooting like how, quote, unquote, girls shoot. So then it gets into this concept of the theory of collective action and how many um, how many people need to be breaking, how many people need to be looting before your grandmother joins in? That's basically the question, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so every time he talks about these conversations, he brings up, um, whether it's capitalization rates or whatever, gets me thinking about how to talk about some of these things in my work. So I'm always a person that's like, hey, I was just listening to this podcast and they said X, Y, and Z. And so we should do this differently. Um, a lot of being an infopreneur to bring it back is about being interdisciplinary. And so you might work in biology, but you should be reading things that are in sociology or anthropology or um, business. So if you step outside of kind of your space, A, we're all probably having kind of very similar conversations. Um, and B, someone's probably solved something in a different way. And you can just kind of like change the names and just like it'll work really well in your space. So being generative in that sort of way is really based on being interdisciplinary, I think. Okay. Yeah. You did mention a couple books. I did. That you're did. reading now. Yeah. What is your all-time, let's say top three books? Oh, man. Because one I think would be really hard. Yeah. I read The Alchemist every time I need to make a major change. So okay. every single time. And I have a whole story of how I found out The Alchemist even existed. But the book got me to move to Miami. I just took it with me on my trip. So The Alchemist always just probably needs to be in there. Um, let's see. I've read a lot of books. Um Native Son is probably one of my favorite books because every time I read it, I see sometimes we talk about people or we talk about groups and we don't even know how accurate the archetypes we're using are. And so every time I reread that book, so with Native Son, you have a um, man, they're growing up in South Chicago, cramped, just like this is like tenement housing Chicago. And he has his mom, who's hyper-religious, uh, his sister, who I think was like working and trying to get out of the home. And I think he had like a brother. And every single one of them sort of represented a way of reacting to the black experience in Chicago. And so that was interesting to me, that all these different persons sort of represented this different way of responding. It also was the first book I read that made me really scared. <laughs> so I, I got it when I was eight. My dad took me to the bookstore. I don't know why he let me get that book. I got it, um, I start reading it, and then we get to a chapter where, you know, he commits a crime and, like, just drama ensues, and I just, like, didn't read the book for another year. <laughs> so then when I went back, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not that bad. Um, so anyway, so Native Son, uh, The Alchemist, um, and then my third book, let's see here. Hmm. It would probably be somewhere between The Pedagogy of the Oppressed and Wretched of the Earth. And so Wretched of the Earth is by uh, France Fanon. He was a psychiatrist, French-Algerian psychiatrist, saw the atrocities happening during the uh, French-Algerian War and defected. And so he writes a lot about the just sort of psyche of persons who are dealing with oppression and sort of what's necessary and what it looks like to actually like create change. To go back to Errol Washington, the complaints that he would get from um, other folks in, in the black community was that he didn't do enough for black folks. And a lot of the same arguments that people have about Obama. So it was like everyone else when they get in power, they're you know, making sure their cousins have a job and doing this, but you were being fair to everybody. 
And everyone kept saying that, like, that was such a bad thing. But I think Francis Fanon says it the best, you know, in these moments where the oppressed have the opportunity to sit in the oppressor's seat, a lot of times they will do the same things that the persons who oppress them have done. So that's a challenge to me, right, of when I am in positions of power, how do I not be the type of power that I didn't like that came before me? Um, how do I behave and react differently? So Rush of the Earth speaks a lot to that. Pedagogy of the oppressed are kind of both in the same spaces. We talk a lot about changing using education as a means of liberation. So when we have classrooms, and this relates to facilitation to the work that I do, where a lot of times we're given information like a bank. So someone deposits money and then at the end they like get a draft bill, which is your test to make sure you know all the things you're supposed to know. Well, instead, there's this sort of um, dialogical practice you can undergo where learning is a conversation. Learning is taking from everybody's knowledge. There's, we all at this table have something to contribute. And this sort of transformative learning in that way is liberating in and of itself. Because I walk out of that room as a student feeling like when and not, when I'm ready, I could teach too. Or knowing that I bring something to the table. Um, that's a, that's powerful. That's really powerful. So those two books, I always refer back to them. They have lots of tabs in them. Those are two of my favorites. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I have like no, um, fiction. I have like one fiction book maybe. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So. I think that um, anybody listening to this podcast is probably going to be inspired to start having conversations. At least that's my hope. I think that that, that's happened, (laughs) you know, to really start having conversations with people that they may have never talked to before Mm -hmm. or um, considered speaking with. Uh, What's your advice to that person to start to have those conversations? Yeah. Um, Well, one, it's okay if the other person isn't as ready as you are. Um, so there's lots of times where I've gone and talked to people and maybe they were a little thrown off that I was talking to them or, you know, walked away. Don't let that harden you or discourage you from having conversations in the future. So, you know, never, it's, it's okay if someone doesn't want to respond back. Um, and the second would be, we do a really good job sometimes of asking questions, but we don't always listen to the answer. And so listen to the answer. Um, and when and where possible, listen without trying to figure out how to make it useful for you. But just listen to learn and listen and be curious. Those would be my two my two helpful thoughts. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> Takiya, thank you so much for coming in today. Absolutely. It's thank been a pleasure. Me. You're amazing. I appreciate that you're doing this podcast. I've, just everyone else who's, who's been able to speak here has just given some amazing insights. So I hope I'm still in line with them. <laughs> well, you've definitely inspired me personally. Oh, thank you. And I, and I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. See the show notes for links to items covered during this episode, including Takiya's favorite podcasts and books. Thanks as always for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, visit the Leadership Looks Like Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Leadership Looks Like is a podcast dedicated to leaders everywhere. Our mission is to show that leaders come from all different backgrounds, ages, colors, shapes, and sizes. For more information about our project or to become a contributor, visit leadershiplookslike.org. Sign up for Fresh Start Mondays and get access to free leadership tips delivered to your inbox every Monday. To subscribe, visit leadershipexcursion.co forward slash subscribe. And finally, The Coop, Las Vegas' newest co-working location with a focus on community and collaboration. If you're a small business owner looking for office space and amenities and would like to be located in Summerlin, visit thecoopcowork.com. Until next time, continue to inspire and support one another through effective leadership. I'm your host, Cree Edholm. See you again next week.